it's Mike Edelhart, and I'm here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, the beginnings of companies, of new ideas, new approaches to science and tech, and sometimes even a little look at the future. And today I'm here with one of really the most interesting companies we've had the opportunity to invest in, Mike Sheldon of Finless Food. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me over. It's great to have you here. So how do you describe what you do? Basically, we see a lot of problems with the way seafood is produced today, where wild-caught fish, especially big carnivorous ones like tuna, have really high amounts of mercury, plastic. And then for farmed fish, there's a problem with antibiotics. And with all of these, you're doing a lot of ecosystem destruction. With wild-caught fishing, our stocks are depleting really rapidly, and it's destroying whole sections of the ocean. And with aquaculture, like farmed fish, we're running out of space in a lot of places to do it. And we see all of these problems not as a function of how the fish is produced, but we see it as a function of where the fish is produced. So how fish is produced, to me, as a cellular biologist, is muscle cells will proliferate, you know, divide and create more of themselves, and they will form themselves into muscle fibers. They'll weave themselves together with fat cells, with connective tissue, to form fish meat. That's the sashimi that you and I eat. And we think that process is great. The problem is that that process right now happens between the bones and skin of a fish. So what we're doing is just taking that exact same process, which is, you know, everything that I just described, and just having it happen outside of the fish. So you can think of us a lot like a tissue engineering company that's doing like 3D organ printing. But instead of needing to print functional human organs, what we print are delicious fish meat. You actually start with cells from fish. So this is not some weird science fiction, you wave your hand in the air and uh, fish meat appears. Yeah, so what we do is we try and like cut the process in half, basically. We have the R&D process, and that's what you're talking about. We pull a sample from a real fish. The spearhead of our company is working with bluefin tuna. So we isolated muscle cells from real bluefin tuna in Japan, and then grew those cells out and basically made them really strong by just growing them and using selective breeding to pick only the strongest, most delicious, and uh, most nutritious cells we could find. And then we designed a feed specifically for those cells. You know, like in farming, you have to feed your cows like grain-fed cows or, or grass-fed beef. Um, and this really influences the flavor of what you're eating as well as the nutrition. Same goes for us. Um, so we need to actually pick a feed for these cells that makes them delicious and nutritious. And that's where the R&D process stops. We have this strong cell stock and this feed that we've designed. And after that point, we don't need to go back to a fish ever again. We can just take the cells and the media and get them to proliferate effectively forever to create an unlimited amount of fish meat. So you start from a few fish cells and you go through this process and you made that sound very smooth, but I think somewhere they're like almost everything doesn't work and you find the rare thing that does work and, you know, it's kind of laborious and all that. But you get to the point where you can, you believe, take fish cells and cause them to produce uh, output that essentially is fish meat or fish meat like. So why aren't we seeing this on the counter right now? So walk through why it's not easy and what the process is that may cause this to take a while? Yes, that's a really good question. And it's got a, it's got a lot of like layers of answers to it. The, the crux of all of the answers put into like one thing is basically there's just been so little research in fish cell biology that it's like we're trying to domesticate this wild kind of organism, a cell. Humanity has had thousands of years to domesticate 
animals, and we've done a pretty good job of it. Um, they're pretty domesticated, at least cows and pigs, etc. That's sort of like the why all of these things are difficult. The how it's difficult, I can get into. So we had to create our own cell populations, and that means that we needed to actually design cell isolation protocols that could get the cells that we want from a real fish which I think gets glossed over a lot in this process. It is not trivial, um, and, and we're really proud of what we've developed there. From there, we needed to develop processes that would allow these cells that we got surviving outside of a fish to grow at a fast rate and still retain the same taste, price, and nutrition. The challenge then becomes, how do you get the cells to form muscle fibers? We've had some pretty good luck in getting this to happen on a small scale right now, but to do mass-scale tissue engineering is new. Animal cell production already happens in pharma all the time, and that's sort of just like, okay, we have to see what they've done in pharma and just replicate that process with fish cells. But from there, we're going into uncharted territory of how to build real sashimi. So the scale-up is difficult. And then on the other side is regulatory. We have to make sure that there's an efficient path to market for us because we're doing something new. Um, the U.S. regulatory system, luckily, is product-based rather than process-based. So what we have to do is prove that what we're making is the same product that people are eating today. So that means we have to do like nutritional uh, analyses, basically, on what we're producing to make sure that it's giving people like the same protein, the same long-chain fatty acids, etc., so just so we address it, so there are folks I've talked to recently who are very proud of the fact that they can now create tuna off the coast, say, of Mexico, not ranging the ocean and all of that. So if you can grow tuna, and you're talking about domesticating it, essentially semi-domesticate tuna, why go to all the trouble you're going through to make it apart from the fish itself? Hmm. I'd actually spin that back around and say, why are they going through all that trouble? Because for them... Every experiment that they do is tied to the bluefin tuna life cycle. Bluefin tuna has a three to five year sexual life cycle. And so that means that every experiment that they do takes three to five years to come to completion. But for us, our cells divide in about a day. And so for us, experiments just take a day or two. And so they're close, although my understanding is that any closed life cycle tuna farming that exists right now is still about four times more expensive than wild-caught bluefin. And so for us, we're basically saying, hey, like not only can we scale up faster than they can, because we don't have this three to five year lead time, but we also can like figure out our science from a cost perspective before they can get there. Now, you talked about regulation, and one of the things that was interesting to us about you uh, and cell-based, cell-origined uh, fish is that it seemed to us like the path to market through regulation was more straightforward than it might be for, say, same sort of thing with meat. Is that still the case? And and why don't you walk through how that works? Yeah. So it, it is still the case, to, to my knowledge. So in, in the U.S., there's two real regulatory bodies that focus on food. There's the FDA and there's the USDA. The FDA currently has jurisdiction over all seafood except for catfish. And the USDA has jurisdiction over all meat and catfish. This creates a bit of a split. And so they're wondering how to regulate cell-based seafood and cell-based meat and um, are trying to find a solution that works for everybody. Normally, you know, what would happen would be cell-based meat would be regulated entirely by the USDA and cell-based seafood would be regulated entirely by the FDA. So the FDA and USDA have different charters. Um, the FDA is supposed to protect the safety and security of the American food supply. 
I feel we have a pretty strong argument. We can do that. We can make cell-based seafood with no mercury, plastic, antibiotics. The USDA has that as part of their charter as well, but they also have to protect American economic interests while doing so. And so they just have a very different mandate. If there's an argument that a company like us could potentially harm American industry, the USDA has license to shut us down completely, even if what we're doing is completely safe. The cell-based meat companies have you know, spoken with people in government in order to like talk a little bit about their process. And they basically said, hey, you know, the USDA, typically their expertise is in inspecting slaughterhouses, which is obviously extremely important, but doesn't have a ton to do with what we do. Um, we don't slaughter and we don't have any of the same safety concerns. Like slaughterhouses, you have to be very careful because a lot of the animals are like covered in feces, for example. They have to make sure that doesn't end up in people's foods in levels that are harmful. Basically, what we're saying is like, well, we kind of have, you know, just as an example, like a feces free process. I know I'm like picking on something that's a little bit like fun to talk about, um, but there's a lot of concerns like that. Whereas the FDA has a lot of experience regulating technology very similar to ours, like pharma does animal cell culture at scale in a way that is very clean and very safe. And we're basically saying, hey, we're going to do that, essentially. So what's happened is the USDA has recognized that skill set lack themselves, and they've joined together with the FDA to create um, the FDA-USDA Joint Commission on Cell-Based Meats. And that currently is the regulating body that will create a path to market for the cell-based meat companies. For us on cell-based seafood, um, we're watching their process, but so far their language has not included seafood whatsoever. And so it looks like the, the pathway will be created by the Joint Commission, and then we will be put on that pathway, but judged entirely by the FDA. Right. Yeah, well, when we first met, our, we were clear the way we operate our fund, we think really hard about what's going on worldwide, what we think about it, what's going to happen. And one of the perspectives that we began to feel that it's a certainty that the food supply has to be decoupled from acreage hmm. and the ocean is acreage and farms are acreage. And if global warming is happening in any way, shape or form, there's going to be less acreage or the acreage there is is going to be less stable. So if we're going to have the same number of people or even more people and stress from the traditional sources of food and food and water are fundamental to human existence, then something's got to happen. And food is interesting because you can change what people wear pretty straightforwardly, but food goes all the way back to your childhood and your culture and every birthday party and Christmas and all of this. So there's this social, cultural component to food where you can say this has protein in it, but that doesn't mean humans are going to eat it. Yeah. And that in particular is a problem that I've been wrestling with a lot lately. You know, we're trying to figure out what to do in part because a lot of the new technologies that have come onto the market that have needed you know, regulatory help have been able to kind of strong arm their way onto the market. If you look at like uh, Uber or like the scooter companies, they're on the market and people use them, but they really like force their way on there from a regulatory perspective. And whenever we meet with anyone, any congressional member, any like the FDA, the USDA, they're angry about it. They're like, yeah, they got what they wanted, but you know, we're pissed off about it. And that kind of bad will does trickle a little bit into the public, but the difference is between what they do and what we do, I mean, there's obviously a lot, is that you either ride a scooter or you walk, which kind of sucks and, and isn't great, especially if it's raining out like it has been for the right. past like month or something <laughs> here. In San um, Francisco. Yeah, in, in, in the Bay Area. And uh, so for us, like when we're talking to these 
firms that advise on regulatory issues, we're looking at their past clients and it's all been so forceful. It's been such a fight. And we're like, I think that type of press could not work for food because like you said, it's so like cultural and emotional for people that if you have these negative emotions of like, oh, a big company is just like forcing itself on the country and making us all eat this weird thing, that's not going to go well because instead of the option between scooter and walking, which is very different, the option is between our fish and just business as usual, which is environmental destruction. And I want to loop that back into what you were saying about basically just what the planet can sustain. I think one of the saddest parts about this is that like the people who are causing the environmental problems are probably not the people who are going to feel the effects of it, right? right. Like people like me are causing the problems. I'm the one like flying in planes. I'm the right. one like eating meat like uh, on a daily basis. I'm the one, you know, uh, emitting tons of carbon wherever I go, basically in the goods that I buy, the clothes that I wear. But the warming temperatures are going to really force out at-risk communities. I feel like a moral imperative to try and correct for this stuff because I'm so much a part of the problem and I'm really not gonna feel the effects of it probably. On a completely different topic, when we do these, I always look at what the CEOs are doing or writing about and um, it's always very interesting, but uh, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody use more album titles in their uh, writing Chemical Brothers and Morrissey and all this. And you talked in uh, somewhere, tweets or something, about how Miyazaki, the incredible Japanese uh, animator, was like a big influence, which I've, across hundreds of companies, never heard before. So Miyazaki, where did that come from? I just love what he does. It it has such an incredible like set of values in it. Uh, so, I mean, where it started was my parents are both uh, psychologists and they decided that their children would not really watch TV or movies at all. And they especially decided that we were not to watch Disney. They didn't like the values that were imparted in Disney. And I'm not making a judgment call on Disney. This is my parents' decision. And that left a hole for Miyazaki to step in. Miyazaki has so many environmental messages in it. Like if you look at some of his earlier work, um, like Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, is a story about how humans have like polluted the entire planet and like nature is fighting back. And in order for humanity to survive, they need to end up like embracing the nature that has fought back. And instead of fighting against the nature, joining forces with it in order to solve their problems together. I don't know if I understood that message as a kid. I probably didn't, but I think it sunk in somewhere and has really influenced me in a big way. What's funny though, as of late, is like I've been telling people like, oh, you know, I didn't, haven't really seen any Disney movies because I wasn't allowed to watch them as a kid. And if I, when I watch them as an adult, I'm usually like, oh, the magic's not there. Like I think you needed to be younger to get it. But then people remind me, uh, Miyazaki movies are now owned by Disney. So I have watched Disney movies. They're <laughs> Miyazaki movies. Disney is the board. Resistance yeah. is futile. futile. We will eventually own everything. So when, uh, as a final question, will folks who might be curious be able to go to the local supermarket and get finless? It'll be a few years before we can do that kind of thing. We are going to move through food service first. Um, we want to start with high-end restaurants and really associate ourselves with high-quality stuff. We feel we can start at the top and go down, but starting you know, at a low-quality low section and moving up would be more difficult. So we're trying to get a bunch of chefs on board. And what's nice is we've actually met a lot of like warm embrace there. You know, There's this whole group of 200 chefs that have signed on to an agreement with the Monterey Bay um, with the aquarium to not eat or serve bluefin because it's just it's a threatened species and some of some of them are endangered species. And so for them, they love fish, they love food, and they want to create really fine dining experiences. 
but they don't have a way to do bluefin. And so they're really excited by this possibility because we can make something that tastes as good as what they're not allowed to serve anymore, um, but doesn't destroy the environment. I can't wait to, to see how it all comes out. Yeah, thanks so much for having me over, Mike. Sure, I really thanks. appreciate your support. Delighted to have a chance to help.